listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome to episode 274. Paige, you're almost singing. I know. <laughs> well, <happy>. I, <laughs> well, it's not even about happiness as I say this every week. Yeah. So. Well, you know what you don't say every week? Is that a trick question? Or? No. What you don't say is that. Oh, this is a lame segue. You can get an ad spot now. So for the first time ever, you can actually buy an ad spot on this show or any of our other shows. So the 15 to 30 second mid roll. And it's dirt cheap, so it's basically $500 an episode for this show, or $2,000 a month, and I think $185 an episode, or $780 a month for any of our other shows. If you want to learn more, just go to OGGN.com, hit pricing, we'll also put a link in the show notes. Hey, we got reviews. We do got a review. This is actually an interesting one, and a good one. Love the show. I myself ran an oil and gas media company for 10 years during the big time in the Marcellus shell. To be honest, I got out of the business because everyone was about pro versus con, drilling in that gasoline fracking thing. That topic is a subject holder in itself. You guys, I love your program and I listen to it every week. If you'd ever like to collaborate, I'd love to contribute to your program. It's why I envisioned for my company, but getting people in the Appalachian Basin to turn their attention toward the business of the industry proved too much for me. Congratulations on a great program, and it's a James Ashbury. Guess what? Hmm. I talked to James. Well, like I'm surprised. I would not be surprised if there's a Marcella Shell podcast in the works oh. after we get this boatload of show, shows launched uh, this yeah. month in October. But a great guy, articulate, a very interesting, great connections. And I would love to actually do a show around the Marcellus, the people, the culture there. So if any companies out there that do business in that part of the U.S. and you'd like some exposure, talk to me about sponsoring the show because we're going to launch this. You say that now. We'll see. We'll see. I don't believe anything until I see contracts. But anyway, meanwhile, back on the ranch, it is First Friday Q&A. And of course, we always start out with a question from Ludwig. And his question is, why are oil producers not maximizing drilling as they have permits to lower energy prices? It's actually a great question, Ludwig, and I've gotten this a lot myself. It's a bunch of stuff that people don't understand. So number one, you see the federal government talking about all these permits that were issued just because you have a permit doesn't mean you have the ability to actually get out there to drill. Yeah. You have to build roads. You have to build infrastructure. You have to figure out gen sets. You have to find a rig. You have to get crews. And so all of that takes time. The other thing is there's a lot of permits out there that never get used based upon what the price of crude's going for. And if you've noticed, the price of crude has dropped. Mm -hmm. So when the less than perfect areas are permitted and the price of crude is very expensive, then those areas get drilled because no matter how hard or expensive it is, you can make money. But in this environment right now where the price of crude dropped a little bit, not all of the permits, the acreage will make sense to drill because you're not necessarily going to make a profit on it. Right. So it's just that Ludwig, just people don't understand the way that a lot of our media portrays is like, look, there's 9,000 permits and nobody's drilling. That's not what's going on. There's reasons they're not drilling and it's always economic. Yeah. H.K. Lantry wants to know where y'all are. <laughs> you know, he's from Louisiana. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, so H.K., we're right here recording. Where you at? Right. <laughs> what a question. See, audience, doesn't take much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Mean Bill, first you have an 
excellent show and it really helps me learn the industry. Thanks for what you do in promoting a terrific industry. Second is a serious question that has stumped every smart person I've asked. According to the interwebs, you know, Wikipedia, Ukraine has 72 natural gas compressor stations. I assume these stations along push along Russian gas. If what the Russians have done to the Ukrainians is so bad and clearly inhuman, why haven't the Ukrainians torched the compressor stations or other oil and gas infrastructure? Wouldn't that hurt the Russians and the basis of their power? Yes, this is funny how business makes bad bedfellows. We talked about this a little bit, I think, on the last show. Yeah, we did. What's happening, Mean Bill, is that both Russia and Ukraine countries are making money by making sure this gas flows, right? So neither one of them have enough of a financial interest to stop this arrangement. And it's just bizarre. So they're in bitter warfare. And actually, it looks like Russians really taking it right on the nose. Ukraine fighters just not stopped. The problem is Ukraine is a much smaller population, and it's getting to the point where at some point they're not going to have enough healthy bodies to fight on the front lines. But even though they're in this bitter warfare, and this bitter warfare that's going on right now it goes back you know, 30 years or 40 years, and they really, really don't like each other. They're both making money off this, so they're going to stay up and run. It's interesting how it that really works. It really is interesting. All right. So Richard Thurston says, hi, guys, I was barred from LinkedIn for dogging, no obscenities, some oil and gas haters, ridiculous posts. I thought it was a temporary timeout. I'm still unable a year later to get on LinkedIn. Any ideas? Thanks. This is your field, obviously. Yeah. So I've been fussed at by LinkedIn. And all I was doing is asking people that don't agree with my opinions on climate change and the oil and gas industry if they would like to talk about it. Oh, you've already been hit? I got warned, right? Oh, okay. And so what I did when I got warned is I reached back out and I took a screenshot of what I posted. You got to remember, a lot of this stuff is automated and real people don't flip the trigger. And once I took a screenshot, sit it back in, they said, oh, no worries. We're sorry. Couple of things though. First thing, don't panic. Don't get emotional. Don't get angry. It's literally probably an algorithm. This is not a person saying that your content is, you know, radicalized or dangerous or whatever. It's an algorithm that you flip. Next thing, forget about reaching out on LinkedIn people to on LinkedIn. Go to Twitter and it's at LinkedIn help. At LinkedIn help. Because it's so much more public, so much faster, you get a much better response going to LinkedIn on Twitter than going to LinkedIn on LinkedIn. I know it makes no sense. So you have to go to the cesspool? You have to go to the cesspool, but I got to answer within five minutes when I post it on on Twitter, right? Next thing, don't be a prick about this, right? It's don't start threatening and lawyering up and everything. The moment you do that, they're not going to talk to you, right? They're a public company. They're owned by Microsoft. The moment that you start threatening anything in order to protect themselves, they're just going to stop, stop even dealing with you, stop communicating with you. And there's no really no reason for that. Remember, once again, a person didn't ban you. If you want to think of it as robots, the robots banned you. Then in LinkedIn, I know you're not going to like me saying this. Please don't do anything to my LinkedIn subscription or this, but get a paid subscription. I've seen this over and over and over again. The people with the paid subscriptions are less likely to be impacted or banned than the people that are free. Think about it. That makes sense. I'm a customer of LinkedIn. They're making money off me, right? Whereas if you have a free account, they're not making money. In fact, you're probably eating up some of their resources. Then finally, you know, once you get unbanned, don't do it again. I know it's not fair. I know what you did wasn't wrong, but you know there's rules in place. You don't own the platform. They do. You got to play by their rules. Sorry. Hope this helps, Richard. I pay for it and I barely even use it. So, all right. Blake wants to know what your thoughts are on future of hydrogen for fuel. 
I'm super bullish on hydrogen. We've been using hydrogen for a very long time. Every space mission you've ever seen, whether it's us, the Chinese, or Russians, it's hydrogen that powers the electrical, the fuel cells on those spaceships and the space stations. And it's really cool. So they, they basically pump in hydrogen and oxygen page, and it produces electricity and drinking water. Huh. Yeah. And I think electric vehicles are great. The problem is the battery, specifically the weight. And there's not a, a simple solution based upon current physics. There's some ways to improve it. I know there's solid state batteries, but just, you know, the weight of the battery itself is the physical limits, right? Based on physics. But I think the future of electric vehicles are fuel cells. Once again, we'd have to build the infrastructure. So instead of going to the gas station and getting gasoline and diesel, right. you get yeah, hydrogen. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's its own dangers there. But quite honestly, we take it for granted that when we fill up our car with gasoline, especially, it's super explosive and dangerous, but we've built the infrastructure to make it safe. We could easily do the same thing with hydrogen. So I love hydrogen, very bullish on it. It's already playing a part in our energy mix, and I think it'll play a bigger part as we go through the future. Okay, so next up is from Logan Huber, IPM specialist at Utah State University. I have a two-part question. I was raised in the unit basin where the infrastructure to transport oil is trucks. These trucks are making trips to and from the refineries in Salt Lake City. Mark has talked about a shortage of energy in 2022. With small basins with limited infrastructure like this basin be affected economically due to the energy crisis or will it be a small boom? So I'll let you answer that question first. All right. So Utah is interesting. I don't know what the deal is with Utah. I love your death. I've been on two separate Utah news stations oh, <laughs> around right. fuel prices. So to answer your, your question, Logan, it's a boom. And if you haven't noticed yet, pipelines are starting to be built because it's more economical and safer for the environment than to run everything on trucks. And Utah is interesting. I think they only have five refineries in the state, but they're all in Salt Lake. So it's a single point of delivery, which in some ways is really kind of helpful. It's high quality oil. The refineries in Utah love that oil. So there's a boom. It's actually boom starting to happen right now, right? Literally under your feet right now. Because Utah is landlocked, like some other states, they don't have the cheap transportation of super tankers to bring crude to the refineries. You know, we're lucky here in the Gulf Coast and on the Pacific Coast and on the Atlantic Coast that for almost nothing, you can bring a huge quantity of oil in a super tanker. Utah has to move smaller quantities, and so it makes more sense to produce it locally than to import it from other states or other countries. So you're in the middle of a boom, Logan, and it's going to happen. It's going to continue to run for the next 10 years. All right. So the next question is, are tar sands also highly sought after like the heavy crude that would have come out of the Keystone or less so? So very sought after. The problem is the tar sands are up in Canada and no hate mail geologists. I know we have a little bit of it here in the U.S., but the buyer is the Gulf Coast of the U.S. That's the problem that Keystone was going to fix, bring it from Canada to the Gulf Coast. Well, since Keystone became a political item instead of an infrastructure item, it was killed, and it's not coming back. The company that was funding Keystone is, has sued the U.S. government, and rightly so. It's going to be in court for years. But during this time, other pipeline companies have built pipeline capacity from the tar sands here. Not a single pipeline like Keystone. It's usually shared. So one company owns the first 100 miles, another company is 700 miles. But the connectivity is there. The problem with the tar sands is, number one, it's very expensive. You don't drill or frack to get the oil. The oil is thick, almost like asphalt. And it's mixed with sand, so you got to heat it up. And there is some new technology, I believe, invented by Exxon, where they're actually using solvents, and they're drilling a horizontal 
pipe at above the tar sands and then a horizontal pipe below the tar sands and they drop the solvent from the top pipe. It goes through the oil sands. It grabs all the oil. They pick it up on the bottom pipe and they pump it in. But it still has to be heated because it's so cold there. So the cost is very, very high. And then, unfortunately, for my fellow Canadian brothers and sisters, you have the same political wackos that we have here, uh, actually more so. More so. And so they make it really hard for the producers of the tar sand to actually produce anything. But to answer your question, Logan, there's a huge need and demand for that heavy crew that comes with that, from the tar sands. All right. So next one. Wait, let me stop you before we get to the next one. Oh, Logan, your last thing was sorry for the length of the question. Wait till you hear this one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is a bit of a something. All right. Matthew, who is a student, says, Dear Paige and Mark, this is a difficult message to send you. I discovered your podcast six months ago while I was taking a geopolitics of energy class in grad school. I appreciate how insightful and topical the show is, how apolitical, etc. As a moderate Republican who cares about the environment, I felt comfortable listening to your show. I acknowledge and love the world that petrochemicals built, but I also know that the science on climate change is unequivocal, which is why it was such a bummer to hear that you don't all understand climate change. I can no longer follow or listen to the show in good conscience. Republicans like George Bush and Ronald Reagan fixed the hole in the ozone layer and solved for acid rain with market-based approaches to conserving the environment, listening to science, and doing the right thing. But I shouldn't be surprised and I shouldn't expect to convince you because, as the old quote goes, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So, no, I suppose it was silly of me to listen to a podcast about oil and expect you all to understand the existential threat of climate change. I will also say that for people that seem to have such a firm understanding of U.S. politics, not being able to pronounce Joe Manchin's name or identify the state he is from, arguably the most well-known Democrat senator, sounded a bit hollow and patronizing. Again, bummer to say this, but until you change your tune on climate, I'm out. Boy, bye. Boy, <laughs> bye. This is not an airport, and a notification of your departure is not necessary. Yeah. Okay, Matthew, a couple of things. The science of climate change is not unequivocal. The, the climate changes naturally. We go between ice age and global warming, ice age and global warming. It's a pendulum. It's a pendulum. The theory that man has influenced that change is still just a theory, it's still a hypothesis. Just so you know, the hole in the ozone is once again a natural phenomenon. What happened is in the 70s, we developed the technology to be able to measure the hole in the ozone. What we didn't know is it also was cyclic. It went smaller and larger, smaller, and larger. And our ability to measure it started when the ozone was naturally, holes naturally getting bigger. Chlorodifluorocarbons, which is Freon, which we in Europe eliminated in the early 80s to help with the hole in the ozone, have not been eliminated. In fact, they're higher than it was in the 70s and 80s because India, China, and Russia still use them. The hole in the ozone is much smaller. So there was no connection between chlorodifluorocarbons and the hole in the ozone. Once again, you need to understand science. And then if you really want to understand, check out the Mankiewicz cycle, which is basically the wobble in the Earth's orbit. That has a way bigger impact to our climate than any CO2 gas, any greenhouse gas. And CO2 is only 3% of the greenhouse effect. Water vapor is about 85%. So for somebody that likes to talk about us not understanding science, it sounds like to me... You don't understand science. I just think somebody wanted some attention. Yeah. Well, like Paige said, honestly, we hate to see you go. I literally have a show where I invite people on different political beliefs than mine, different beliefs on climate change and the oil and gas industry to learn. 
So if your politics means that you don't want to learn, that's your deal. So see you, Matthew. And I don't think whenever we were talking about Joe Manchin, I was so pissed that I went and and you can hear it now. I'm having trouble talking. Right. So. Well, the other thing is because of what we do and because this industry is global, we don't just focus on the U.S. politicians. We have to focus on the world's politicians, right? I'm not sure how familiar you are right now with the election going on in Brazil. We're very familiar with it, right? This is just, what this is, is somebody that feels their very soul, their very presence is connected to the positive impact that man's activities made to climate change. It's a way the former group, something called a confirmation bias that's hardwired in all of our DNA. And so by us talking about how we, not we, Paige has never commented on climate change, right? Mm-mm. How I, it's not that I don't believe Climate change is happening. 100% I believe climate change is happening. 100% I can prove the earth is warming up. What has not been proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt is this man's activities contributing to that. And world, this is one of those things that we have to get right. It has to be 100% right, 100% correct. We can't get this wrong. And if you're old enough, you remember the same groups in the 70s thought that the world was headed toward an ice age. And the, the threat then was global freezing, right? Right, so, yeah. But, you know, once again, us losing one listener is makes no difference. And if you can't listen to people other sides that have different beliefs in you, how are you going to really learn? That was another th- thought I had. And I'm like, how are you supposed to learn anything? But anyway, boy, bye. I can't even pronounce this. Just call me MP. All right. MP is... <laughs> yes. No, go ahead and read it. Okay. I am an oil and gas professional with over 42 years of refining and gas processing experience. I am... Looking forward to for assignment-based work. And the reason I put this in here, usually I don't put these in here. We get hundreds of these. Oh, right? do we really? Oh, yeah, all the time. Not as many as people looking for husbands and wives. but. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want the whole world. We have a global audience. We literally have one country left, and we're in every country on the planet. Oh, what are, which one are we missing? Do you know? I can't remember the name. But it's actually a little country off the tip of South America near Antarctica. So for all I know, there may be only three people living there. We need to find out. We need to get them to listen to podcasts so we can own the world. Okay. Anyway, so we get a bunch of these. So a couple of things I feel for you. You're looking for work and you're reaching out for help. And I know that we have this huge presence and you run across us and you're hoping I can help. So first thing is, if it has anything to do with a visa, there is no way we can help you. I'm sorry, right? There's laws in different countries about having the right to work and we can't help you get a visa. We can't help you get sponsored. And most of the people that reach out to us around this subject looking for work are from other countries and that would be a visa issue. So yeah. if I was magic and I could wave a magic wand, I would do it, but I'm not. We also have a lot of people reach out to us that don't have visa issues. And when we can, we try to help. I personally try to help all of y'all out there. I just don't have enough hours in the day. So, you know, MP, I'm sorry, just based upon the way this is written, I would suspect that English is not your first language, which is fine, totally fine, which also makes me think that you're probably going to have a visa issue with something. If I'm wrong about that, reach back out to me with gas processing experience. You should not have a problem finding a job right now. The the refineries are desperate for people as they're starting to light these older refineries back up and trying to get some new ones built. But once again, people, we just can't help you find a job, especially if some type of visa is involved. I don't think there is a visa problem, Mark. Look at the phone number. You know, Paige, maybe. But in today's world, I can have any number from anywhere. 
Oh, that's true. Yeah. Oh, because there's not a country code in front of it. Never mind. Just kidding. Okay. Well, no, that's a U.S. number. Yeah. But there's so many tools out there where you can have any, literally any number from any country you want. Yeah, I know. Like, you know, Google and stuff. Oh, look, Logan's back with another question. <laughs> Go, Logan. <laughs> oh, oh, because he said, I just listened to episode 272 and heard you guys need more questions. <laughs> <laughs> also, Paige has the best commentary. Well, I mean, especially after this episode. I've submitted a question already, but this one also came to mind. I grew up in the Unitoba Basin, and the mindset there of the oil field is trash. Bulky sunglasses, wife beaters, both old, both clothing and literal. Oh, man. And long pinky nail, coke addicts, and driving jacked up trucks. My question is, does a lot of the world think the oil field is this way? Trashy and wild, wild west. Or is this only a niche to small basins and operators that work in these similar basins? I don't know. I've seen a lot of people with stickers that say oil field trash. Yeah. So, Logan, this is always, since I've been in the industry, been the case of the smaller operators and the smaller service companies in basins. It has nothing to do with the size of the basin, right? It's the smaller operators and the smaller service companies. Quite frankly, what most of the world thinks of is conventional reservoirs. And very complex operations. Everybody's wearing FR, steel toads, hard hat, ears, eyes. You know, think of Chevron, Exxon, BP, Total. Think how they do these large, complex offshore operations. That's what most of the world thinks of when they think of oil and gas. We're lucky that we have so many non-conventional and conventional reservoirs on land here in the U.S. And you see this in Midland. I go to Midland right now. Right, I can see the yeah. same thing in North Dakota. Right, I can yeah. see the same thing in Pennsylvania. And it's kind of embarrassing for our industry. It is the culture. And, you know, it wouldn't take much for guys to dress a little bit better, right, to not be so raw around the edges. Now, the jacked up truck thing, I got into a discussion with somebody on LinkedIn about this, and they just didn't understand it. That makes them happy. And sometimes they need it. Like, I'm telling you the truth. In Midland, when they have a lot of rain, you can't get down the main street. Oh, it starts a, raining. You're, you're, you you better have have take truck. You have to have a lifted truck literally to operate. So sometimes the lifted truck is for work. Most of the time, it's because they want it. It's a status symbol. And it's no different than me buying nice camera gear or somebody taking their family for a vacation. In the or Mediterranean, a sports car. Or a sports car. <laughs> yeah, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I didn't just buy a sports car. I bought a sports car and put a ton of money in it to make it even faster, right? So the jacked up truck, I think, is totally fine. But you are right. That oil-filled trash culture isn't good for anybody. And the other thing I find interesting about it, Logan well, only if you're hurting other people or yourselves, right? Well, the other thing I find interesting about it is young kids will come into the industry, kids maybe that don't go to college right out of high school, and they're normal kids, and they get exposed to the awful trash culture, and then they become awful trash themselves, you know? So now they're wearing the wife beaters. Now they're wanting the jack-up truck, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's just a culture of the smaller operators and the service companies, regardless of what basin it is. But you don't see that anywhere else in the world. I've never seen it anywhere else in the world except here in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Now, what I have seen, <laughs> it's horrible. I've seen people with no PPE on. I mean, zero. No shoes, no hard hat. I've seen them covered in pipe dope. I've seen them covered in crude oil. Because a lot of parts of the world, they don't really care about anything. It's a job, and this is what it takes to get the job done. And the company or the operator is not going to spend money on PPE because it doesn't have to. Because there's no. They don't have OSHA. They don't have OSHA. They don't have the EPA. They don't have unions. You know, any of that sort of stuff. So I've seen tremendous horrible working conditions in other parts of the world and i've seen some hilarious stuff you know i've seen in china where they had american crews on the rigs american engineers and they wanted to cook the american food and so they made them pizza and the pizza was 
a bread dough, like a pizza crust, butter, peas, what? <laughs> goat meat, and seaweed, right? It Ugh. looked good. It was not good. It they had never good. made they had never made a pizza, right? But oh. they were they were trying. They were trying to make the Americans feel okay. welcome. But yeah, well, that awful trash that's, thing. That's really nice. It really is. It really is. They were trying. But the, yeah, that awful trash thing, I'm not a fan of it either. I think it makes our industry look bad. Just reminds me of a bunch of good old boys. Yeah. So all right. Connor writes in, Hi Mark, hi Paige. I often hear Mark mention on the podcast that the Saudis are tapped out, don't have room to increase production. Recently, major politicians such as Emmanuel Macron, I have come to the same conclusion that Mark has been talking about for over a year. Can you please elaborate on the forces limiting Saudi production? Keep it up. Also, would definitely subscribe if you started a newsletter, Connor. We have a newsletter. It's yeah, just but it's event just about letter. events. That's not a bad idea. Let us get through all this work we have to do this next quarter. Yeah, because, I mean, we're going to be relaunching two shows and probably bringing three more on Yeah, by the end of September. So I've got a lot of equipment to order. So what's going on? So let's talk about two different things. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia specifically and then OPEC. So Saudi Arabia has the reservoirs and their conventional reservoirs. They're easy to get the oil out the ground. Basically, they pump a gallon of seawater in the ground and a gallon of oil comes up. And the cost of that gallon of seawater is zilch. The problem is they haven't been drilling. And as you know, if you listen to the show, you can't just go poke a hole in the ground overnight and get oil. It takes time. Even in Saudi Arabia, it takes time. So because they haven't been drilling, they're falling behind. So that's why Saudi Arabia itself can't increase production. They're literally tapped out. The number of holes they have in the ground, they're maximizing the production they have with the existing wells. And until they drill new wells, they can't increase production. Now, OPEC as a whole has a different problem. Because of years of warfare and strife with the different countries, the infrastructure has been destroyed. So they have tons of wells that are sitting there that you can't get the oil out of the ground or the gas. You can't move it. There's no pipeline. There's no terminals. So OPEC as a whole has an infrastructure problem. Saudi Arabia has a well problem. And I love the fact how they like to talk about how they can increase production. They can't. I know they can't. And like you said, Connor, I've been saying that for over a year. The other thing is, guess what they're getting ready to do? What? They're saying they're going to make production cuts. Okay, mm-hmm. but they're not hitting the production numbers they say they are. So I guarantee, I bet you a thousand dollars that whatever number their production cuts are adds up to the exact number of what they can actually produce now. So they're gonna say, "Look, we've cut production and we're hitting this number." No, you can't hit the number you say you're gonna hit, and so you could make the number lower so you say you're hitting your target. Watch, just see it doesn't happen. Okay, so the next one is from Bart. Oh, that's a hilarious email. Silly question, but do you listen to competition and which one? Also, what's the best book you can recommend? I don't listen to podcasts that are oil and gas anything because I do it for a living. So, but David Blackman and Stuart Turley are pretty good guys. Yeah, they're great. Books, it depends on what you're looking for. I would say Oil 101, you always hear me recommend that book. It should be in everybody's library. Same way for Fundamentals of Oil and Gas Industry for Beginners. And then there's actually an oil and gas production for non-technical people. Those are all really great books if you want to understand it. There's also some nonfiction books out there that tell the story of some of the barons, which are just great reading. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And just like Paige, I don't listen to many oil and gas podcasts. because, And I'm not bragging here. If you search for the top oil and gas podcasts, like on Google, 
we own that spot. We have like the top 13 shows. And so they're all part of our network. There's other oil gas podcasters out there that do a really, really good job. And I like some of their shows, but I don't actually have much time to listen to it because in my spare podcast listening time, I'm typically listening to marketing shows. I'm listening to shows on science. So I listen, the podcasts I listen to are all comedy, really. So yeah. like your mom's house podcast and of course, Joe Rogan. I will give a big shout out to our former, still friend of OGN, but to Justin Godier. Go listen to Wicked Energy with JG. Yeah, yeah, for he's sure. He's good. Even if you don't like the, oil, even if you don't know the oil and gas center, he's just entertaining and funny. Yeah, he pulls he out is. great stories from people. So uh, there you go, Justin. You got a plug from us, but you do good content, so you deserve a plug. Oh, and something I just recently got in the mail was Fossil Future from Alex Epstein. Oh yeah, so both Alex Epstein's books are really good. He approaches the oil and gas industry and a lot of the world's. That's the right way to say this. A lot of the world not appreciating the industry from a philosophical point of right. view. And I, and I love that. He's a good guy. Yeah, I've had Alex. him on. He's fantastic. All right. So the next one is from Anonymous. First thing, I love the show. Mark, I listened to your new show, The Balance Point, and you have really outdone yourself. It's great that you have the courage to bring people on that think differently than you on things like climate change and the oil and gas industry. I love how instead of attacking them, you try to engage them and understand their point and view. I have two questions. Number one, why don't you get Greenpeace, Sierra Club, 365.org, etc. on the show, guys? And number two, is it hard to not make fun of them? <laughs> Keep on turning it to the right, guys. Yeah. So first thing is I've invited all of these groups on the show. Nobody wants to come on. I have no idea why they're afraid of a 57-year-old podcaster, but they are. An anonymous who actually is an investor in relations. No wonder he's being anonymous. <laughs> I'm going to do a short video probably in the next month or two on LinkedIn, literally not making fun of people, but literally listing all the large organizations that won't come on my show. I don't understand why they don't want the free exposure. I don't understand why they don't want to engage with me in conversation. I'm not going to make fun of them. But to answer your question, is it hard not to make fun of them? Sometimes it really is. Sometimes some of the things they believe are just hilarious. And let me give you a good example. You know, there's a lot of people that don't like our industry that believe that oil and gas comes from dinosaur blood. And you go even, <laughs> even, and it's very, it's a very common belief, very common. Even if you don't understand science, how does that even make common sense? But it's, yeah, it's hard not to make fun of them. But thank you for the kudos. That show is an experiment and it's exceeded all of our expectations. I never thought it'd be that successful. Same way with Behind the Curtain, when we keep the microphones after we end this show. Once again, that's been very successful. Yeah, but we don't do it after first Friday Q&A because by yeah. that time I'm tired. And hungry. Yeah, usually hungry. All right, next one's from Chantel Williams, project manager at Schlumberger. By far my favorite podcast and I love the chemistry between you two. Thanks for putting all the work in to help educate your audiences. I think it speaks very highly of Mark that he publicly admits when he is wrong. Unlike Paige, she doesn't ever seem to be wrong. <laughs> That's fair. Speaking of Paige, girl, where is the beauty blog? There's a whole bunch of us waiting to learn from you. And I, for one, would also be interested in your diet and exercise routine. I'll explain why I'm laughing after that. Finish this. I struggle even trying to get a walk outside once a week. So I would love to know how you stay in such great shape. You're probably seeing old pictures. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I gained like 20 pounds over the pandemic. I'm down 12, but I'd like to lose about 10 more. So I've been practicing putting my makeup on in front of my therapist. <laughs> I can't make <laughs> and this I up. can't seem to be able to put on makeup 
and talk at the same time. So what I think I'm going to have to do, like, guys, I've been trying. What I think I'm going to have to do is just do my routine and then voice over it. Oh, that's a good solution. Yeah. It's also easier production-wise because you don't have to worry about making sure everything's perfect No, I can talking. Ju- yeah. Exactly. And I am way too ADHD for that. So I think that's what I'm going to do. I didn't know people were interested in other stuff. My diet is pretty much don't eat out all the time. Eat, you know, I stay away from sugar as much as possible. I think the only sugar I have is in my coffee in the morning. And that's about it. And then my exercise routine isn't much of anything. I just, I get on the treadmill and I walk for 30 minutes and whatever, however, you know, the distance of that is whatever. Oh, I also have a desk bicycle. She really does. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I can kill 20 miles easy. So, yeah. But yeah, thanks for asking. I guess I'll figure out, maybe I'll create a specific, I'll just create a new Instagram account and maybe... Put that on that's there. a good idea yeah well, yeah yeah that way everybody can go to it because I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody has instagram i think everybody that would be interested in your beauty blog is also on instagram they have to be well right yeah yeah all right so the next one is from albert kolinsky procurement lead at total mark i recently ran across your predictions for this year and oh my god you nailed it so when I went back and looked at all your predictions going back to 2014, and you're better than the top analysts in the industry, which <laughs> I, is, I think I'm going to have to agree with Albert. Number one, where do you get the insight and information from to make such accurate predictions a year ahead of time? Number two, have you ever thought about monetizing your predictions? I would think most of the large oil and gas service companies would pay big dollars to have your crystal ball. Awesome show. Keep it up. Don't they copy you? I can't prove it, and I try to take it as a compliment. But yes, over the years, there's been a lot of the big analytics firms that after I release my predictions, which is usually November of the year before, so November of this year, I'll release predictions for 2023. All of a sudden, almost word for word, <laughs> you see my stuff come up. And like I said, I take it as a compliment. How do I make such accurate predictions where I get my insight and information? Albert, it's what we do for a living. So between the podcasts and the different guests and shows that we have, I learn a lot there. But you also have to remember my original company, which is still around Modal Point, is a market research company focused on the oil and gas industry. Right. And so by doing work with that company, I'm interviewing you know, top-level executives, project managers, operation managers all over the world that work in the industry. And by understanding what they're dealing with, and I see similar patterns in it, and I have a very strategic mind, which is sometimes awesome when I do predictions, it's sometimes a curse because I can't help but strategize about every single thing that goes on. But that's where that comes from. So literally, it's just experience and access to not academia, but to the people that are actually industry doing the work. You put those two together, and it's pretty easy to figure out what's going to go up on the future. You know, strategic thinking and doing predictions is literally nothing more complex than simply figuring out what's happening today and what are the effects of what's happening today could be out in the future. It's really not that hard. You just have to have the experience and also the data, which I get directly from the people that work here. As far as monetizing it, mm. Albert, I'm too busy. I don't have, to, I don't have time to We're do that. We're too busy trying to monetize other things. Yeah. And then it would, it would get in, and to Paige's point, instead of me laughing at people that copy my stuff, then I'd, I'd have to go to court over intellectual property. And, and just, I just don't want to do all that. And honestly, I like giving away for free. If I give it away for free and I'm wrong, it's an uh uh-oh. If I monetize it 
and I'm wrong, it's like that's serious consequences, right? And I don't always get I it right. Even, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. 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 The risk is a little high there. Yeah. All right. Last question. Deborah is from Deborah Packer, who is a field technician from Drager International. I absolutely love your podcast and listen to it religiously. The question is really for Paige, but Mark, feel free to chime in. I work in the field. I love my job and my company. They are happy to provide whatever PPE I need, FR, steel toes, and the rest. But Paige, I think you and I share the same issue of being, shall we say, a bit top heavy. When I put on an FR that are large enough to cover my chest and leave ample room to work, the bottoms are too big and it's a hazard. And if I put my FRs on so that the bottoms fit, I can't breathe. Help. You know, I would check out Bulwark. They make pretty good FR separates specifically for women. I really think that I would just go there and wee bit top heavy. Girl, <laughs> I got back issues. It is not fun. So I get you. Yeah, I am with Chime in here, strangely enough. So Paige is absolutely right. I suspect, Deborah, that you're wearing overalls. Right, coveralls or coveralls, FRs, and so if your body's shaped differently than the norm, it's not going to fit you. And she could also just be in between sizes too. Well, and I totally get about the bottoms being too big, the pants are too long, you could trip over or it's going to get caught machinery. So Paige is right. If you go to Bulwark, which is is friends of the show, we love them deaf. Not only do they have separate, so you can get a separate size top, then you can get a bottom, so you make sure everything fits. They're actually really nice looking. The one thing is when you reach out to Bulwark, make sure you talk to them. When you wear in two pieces instead of coveralls, you need something in between that just in case there's a flash fire. And it can't be something that's nylon or polypropylene like a lot of the wicking stuff because if there's a flash fire, it's going to melt and burn you. It needs to be cotton. Well, it's kind of long, Mark, so she can tuck it in, I'm sure. Yeah, but still talk to Bulwark about what you need to wear under that because what you wear under a two-piece FR is more critical than what you wear under a one-piece FR. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. So, All right. You ready for Weekend Petroleum History? Sure. We do this little, the people love this. August 24th, 1892, Patilo Higgins, who become known as the prophet of Spindletop, founded Gladys City Oil and Gas Manufacturing Company and leased 2,700 acres in Beaumont, Texas. Everybody thought he was wrong. His family's a multimillionaire. August 24th, 1923, University of Texas receives its first royalty check for $516.50. Oh, that's cool. Isn't that cool? After Santo Rio, number one, well, started producing on land that they owned. August 24th, 1937, Music Mountain Oil Discovery. Everybody said he was crazy, but the Niagara Oil Company drilled in 1937 and hit a gusher in Bradford, Pennsylvania. And that was the first time that anybody had made a discovery in that area. August 26, 2009, the American Chemical Society designates the development of the first U.S. still for refining as a National Historic Chemical Landmark. So they actually made this old petrochemical company a National History Landmark. Right on. 1859, y'all should know this, first well drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania, drilled 69.5 feet, hit oil, and Edward L. Drake is known as the father of the U.S. oil industry because of that. That's it for the history. Okay. Free day passes. People, this is going away. So if you want to still work, get a, a day pass at the can and go to the front desk, say you're listening to OGG and they'll give you a guest pass, but this will go away in the next month or so. So now's your time to go use it. We love them over there. Wish them all the best. Weekly recount page. Where are we? We're only down one at 762 in the United States. Canada's at zero. 
And international, we're up nine. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. <laughs> wait, wait, you mean they're at zero? What, what happened? Are the politics no, that bad? No, that was the change from the. Well, you know, that was the change from the prior account. Okay, and I just kept going. I'm hungry, guys. I need carbs. <laughs> so the count in Canada, <laughs> there is no change at at two oh one. Internationally, we're up nine at eight thirty three. Awesome. Go to LinkedIn before Paige passes out from low blood sugar. Join, <laughs> join our page quickly. While you're out there, go to either oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN. Both have places for you to ask their questions for the first Friday Q&A like you just listened to. And then we don't have a newsletter around the OGGN podcast, but we do have a newsletter around oil and gas events. It's the links in the show notes. It's absolutely free. And then if you're in the Houston area, the September 13th, I believe, whatever it is, the second Tuesday in September, we're doing something that has never been done before, Paige. Yep, and that's all we can say about it right now. No, no, we no? can't. It's out public now. What? So what we're doing is the API, American Petroleum Institute, normal monthly luncheon. So think of a bunch of oil and gas business leaders in suits. I was thinking of something else. Getting Sorry. together, right? Yeah, we're not supposed to divulge that. Yeah. So the API monthly luncheon, once again, a bunch of oil and gas executives. OGGN is bringing a panel of a major operator. So I can't tell you who the operator is, but it's the biggest or one of the biggest ones out there, along with some of the top subject matter experts from Hewitt Packard Enterprise. We're going to have a panel discussion and we're going to live stream it to our global audiences. So this is going to sell out. There'll be a link in the show notes. Sign up now. Like I said, it's the first time this has ever been done and it is going to be a blast. All right. Cool. I know you're hungry. You ready to get out of here? Yeah, because I'm going to be on vacation soon. So, woo. <laughs> Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.